Welcome everyone to our second Star Tropics podcast for the commune. Tonight we'll be continuing our discussion. Uh, last time we talked about the controls of Star Tropics and how that informed the design of individual elements and dungeons. And today we'll be talking about things from a much broader perspective, almost the opposite end of the spectrum. We'll be talking about the structure of the game and how the pieces are all put together to create a linear, continuous experience that the player gets to uh, play. So we'll be doing that by looking at story, we'll look at the overworld, we'll talk about how the live system works, and uh, we'll try to put all those things together. Before we get into Star Tropics in too much detail, uh, I want to introduce my co-hosts tonight. I'm yourself, and with me I have Golem. How are you doing? I'm doing swell. I have Adrian. How about you? I'm doing great. <laughs> Adrian, are you there? Alright. Shit, I didn't realize I muted myself. <laughs> um, I wish the post office would be open for longer than three in the afternoon, but they decide to not be open on the days that make most sense, so screw them. Yeah, other than that, suckers. other than that, I'm okay. They're trying to teach the banks a lesson about how annoying it is to have short hours. Send them an angry letter. <laughs> uh, all right. And Daniel, how about you? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. All right. It's just the four of us tonight, and. Before we get started in the Star Tropics, we're going to be talking about the kind of chunks that the player experiences the game in. So a question I had with regards to that, something that sort of informs how I think about games, is how long do you guys play a game when you sit down for it? Do you play for an hour at a time? Do you play for five minutes at a time? Do you play throughout the course of the day? Do you play only on Saturdays? You know, what is your general rhythm of attacking a game? For me, it depends on the genre. For Star Tropics or anything with adventure elements, really, I will devote at least an hour per play session. And I know you are an avid note-taker as well. Is that the case with all games you play or just with the ones that you want to get serious with? Just the ones I want to get serious with. For example, you know I've been playing Darius Burst for... A very long time. And that's that's just a casual game. I can put it on for 10 minutes to practice a boss or something. And I don't really take notes or pay too close attention to how I play. Okay. How about you, Adrian? How do you go about things? For me, it varies a lot. I don't do anything consistently from week to week, but in terms of hours themselves, typically two hours, though I have and on many occasions gone well past two hours, sometimes even four hours. But I noticeably fatigue around, you know, the three-hour point. But what keeps me playing that long is can also depend on how interesting the game is, because with Fallout in particular, I found myself just petering out within an hour, whereas I could play Yeast, Ninja Gaiden Black, Star Tropics, Zelda 2 for well past two hours, even three hours. So you're yeah. someone who, who really gets absorbed in the game. You sort of let the game take you where it's going? Yeah. Sometimes with 
uh, certain games like Ranger X where you can beat the whole thing in almost 45 minutes. To me, I'm satisfied with that, and I call it a session so I don't go crazy and then start playing the game five times in a row. Uh, it's really bite-sized things like that that can also keep me playing well past even my fatigue limit, uh, which is why I have a four-and-a-half-hour video of just me playing Steel Diver Subhorse that Audacity ruined the audio for. you got to play games that loop like Contra. <laughs> yeah. So with a game like Ranger X, even though you finish that in 45 minutes and may not want to play it again right away, is that a game that you would still play from beginning to end over multiple sessions? Yeah, absolutely. You don't put a game down when you get the credits for the first time? Right. All right. Daniel, how about you? Yeah, I tend to play for about 45-minute sessions. I don't really get long stretches of time to play games. Sometimes I'll play for like 20 minutes on before bed, but uh, yeah. And if it's a game that I'm interested in, uh, that I think I would probably be able to write about or that I, I'm already quite curious about, I'll take notes as I go. Sometimes I'll wait until I'm about a third of the way through and I'll start taking notes. Uh, it really depends on the title in question. There are some games where I kind of like walk into it and I'm like, okay, this is just going to be for fun. I'm not going to try to analyze or really think too deeply about this game. But uh, sometimes it doesn't really happen. Like I thought that for Ico and Shadow of the Colossus and I ended up taking a few notes for those. So you get into the games as well, but you have a more measured approach. You sort of need to take some time to react to things, to respond outside of game time before you can really continue forward and, and get a full experience from it? Yeah, I guess, I think with some games, I'm sort of worried about getting to that moment. Like, you know, there's always this moment when you're playing any game where you, like, where it hits you or where you find that it's not for you, right? Like there's that, uh, like in Star Tropics, it was around uh, Chapter 3 that I really started getting into the game. And sometimes I worry that, I won't actually start really thinking about a game until I get to that point. And if that's the case, then that could mean that I've sort of missed out on a lot of things that I could have noticed if I was paying attention earlier on. So I sometimes try to be cautious of that, I guess. Okay. Yeah, you give the game the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Yeah, I know for myself, uh, I'm more on Daniel's end of the spectrum. I Sometimes I'll play video games for an hour or two at a time, but I don't usually play any one game for more than a half hour, 45 minutes. Just because, for me, if I'm not really feeling it and it's kind of a game I'm making myself play out of interest, I will just get bored by that point in time and then I'll start missing things, not paying attention, and it just ends up being wasted time. And on the other end... If it's something that I really like, a lot of times I don't want to plow through it all at once because if I play just one stage or 30 minutes or whatever, then I get some time to reflect on it, and that makes me enjoy the next session that much more. So that's cool. We uh, all have our own different approaches. And I think that that is something that is unique to video games because... With a film, you know, I mean, yeah, you can be a weirdo and watch a film in three sessions or something like that, but you're really expected to be sitting there the whole time and paying attention. 
and a TV show is uh, very clearly meted out into episodes that each have a beginning, middle, and end, and that are meant to give you some satisfaction uh, or some sense of closure after a, a fixed amount of time. But video games, even insofar as they have a uh, level-based structure or a chapter-based structure, as we're going to talk about with Star Tropics, they're a lot more flexible in terms of the intervals you can take them in. And it is something that is not necessarily something you need to pay attention to or you need to actively think about, but it is something that informs your reaction to a game um, just because some people really like games that have tons of preparation and thought put into each and every move that you take. And so they may, may be someone who sits down for a game for definitely an hour every time they play. And someone who only sits down for five minutes may never even appreciate that level of the game because they're never with it for a long enough time to process that information. And that's not a failing on the player's part, mm. but it is a difference of perception and a, a different level of impact that games can have. So that's why I think that the discussion of structure that we're going to have here is important, especially because over the years, the structure of games has changed a lot. Uh, so we're going to be looking at a, a specific moment in time here with Star Tropics. Now that I've talked for a really long time, why don't I have one of you guys explain how the chapters in Star Tropics are? Well, we know that they have eight chapters. We're not going to, we don't need to reiterate that. But what is a chapter of Star Tropics? So the game's broken up into seven chapters, and they generally follow uh, the same structure where it starts off with a Dragon Quest ish overworld sort of narrative vignettes, and it's followed by what we would consider to be a Zelda-like dungeon. So the dungeons are, I guess you'd say, more high-intensity moments of gameplay because they've got these challenges that that require your skill, and they also have fail states. The overworld segments are sort of the opposite. They're quite breezy. The challenges are more like talking to people in a certain order or trying to find your way through a simple maze and there's no fail state. And so it's, yeah, so it's more focused, you know, on being a narrative vignette. So each chapter kind of has these moments of high intensity and of low intensity. Right. So there's an alternating pace to it. They never keep you in one state for too long. Golem, can you tell me about a time that the game deviates from that structure? Well, there is Chapter 4 where you don't get an action dungeon. You just get a maze to go through with your sub. Right, so there you're essentially in the overworld in that safe space from uh, fail states. But it is also not the exact same kind of challenge that you get in the overworld otherwise. Well, it's more that they devote more time to the kind of challenges that you have in the overworld. Like, throughout the game, or at least up through Chapter 6, there are puzzles where you have to find hidden passages with the sub, and, like, I remember one spot, I think it's in Chapter 6, in order to uncover a 
hidden tunnel, you have to stand next to a tree to get a certain tile to highlight. So there are weird, can you find your way through with a sub type puzzles. And what makes chapter four distinct is that that's all that that chapter is. And it's the biggest space of time where you have to do those kind of sub action things. Okay. Daniel described, you know, an alternating pace that keeps the player fresh to each game state. What effect do you think that having Chapter 4 prolong that overworld maze, like, what effect does that have, it being there? Well, I know for me, Chapter 3 is kind of hard. So to get that in Chapter 4 and then find that I got to Chapter 5 without having to platform at all or anything... That felt like the game just gave me a free one. If my goal is to sit down each night and beat a chapter, then like I just had a really easy night. That, that actually is how I was playing, so yeah. <laughs> chapter 4 night was like, God damn it, I didn't get to play any of the parts I like. <laughs> but yeah, there's also, um, if you're invested in one part of Star Tropics and not the other, you're probably going to be more invested in the action segments because those are harder then having to putz around in a maze probably is also going to drag the game down a little bit. Yeah, I find that because there are those times when it deviates from that structure, it's, it's harder to regulate your own play experience because you know if everything is consistent, then at least you know what to expect, and then you can say, okay, I'm going to play on the game for this much, or I'm going to get to the end of this chapter. Like You can actually organize how you play, but when it is quite inconsistent, like with chapters three, which is like three dungeons, you know, like it's almost three chapters in one. And then chapter four, which is like very short, very simple, it throws your orientation out of whack. Yeah, so that came as a surprise to you then. It's not something you're ready for. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I think that on the moments where it does that, I mean, there are heaps of other examples, like what is it, like, Chapter 7 is two dungeons, and there's a bit of like the overhead stuff in between. Chapter 8 is just like a straight boss thing, kind of like a half dungeon and, and then a boss. Right. So, yeah, initially, after the first two chapters, I'm like, oh, okay, so this is how this game works, I get it. And then it kind of um, subverted my understanding of that, and that was quite irritating, I think. <laughs> oh, I had the opposite reaction. So... So you liked it, Golem. Daniel found it irritating. Adrian, how about you? What did you think about those uh, curveballs in there? For me, I thought it was just weird that Chapter 3 was as long as it was, because otherwise you do have that same back and forth between overworld, underworld, overworld, underworld. But it's just like they didn't know when to make the chapter stop. Basically, you have the same back and forth. It's just Chapter 3 goes longer than what you would expect it to. Otherwise, I do think the game still saves your progress. So at least if I was to approach it a second time, I know I can go and know that, knowing that the dungeons, my progress would be saved so I could come back to it and not feel like I needed to play through the whole Mm. thing thinking it wouldn't save like I did the first time. (laughs) Yeah. So I'd like to talk about saving a little bit later. But I know what you mean. Even if Chapter 3 is prolonged, there's a bit of uniformity imposed on it by the, uh, you know, save structure that still gives you the dungeon overworld pause type scenario. Yeah. You wouldn't say you liked or disliked the fact that 
the game subverted these expectations? I still don't know what to make of it. I, I still think Chapter 3 is... They could have like stopped it sooner. Because when you see with the last two chapters... Because I think the, the whole idea with why Chapter 3 is as long as it is, it's just because of a narrative reason. Because you're out trying to save just like this one person and that takes you across you know three dungeons. But with the the ones with the cubes, that happens across two chapters. So they could have just done that. Just have this one quest but across you know its own three chapters so yeah so you brought up a good point which is that the chapters are tied to story structure and naturally that's the case chapter we would just expect to be a term that refers to story you said that uh, chapter three is united by the uh, quest to cure bananas banana pudding sickness or whatever yeah how do the other chapters tell their own stories and how does that fit into the structure that we observe from them so chapter four was just you know you go into jabu jabu's belly and then you get out (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure that was the reference (laughs) pretty much yeah then chapter five was oh it's it's about you know captain bell and his treasure not not his treasure but getting into his cave so he can keep going. And that's what chapter 5 was about. So actually, chapter 5 is pretty much in line with chapters 1 and 2. So, you know, that's kind of standard. And chapter 6 is kind of like the length of two chapters, but same formula. But I did enjoy the big overworld segment that occurs in the beginning. But I feel like that was just a natural progression of the game where these overworld segments and these dungeon segments they're going to increase over the duration of the game. So, does anyone want to say what the story of Chapter 6 is? You finally pick up on Dr. Jones' signal. Each chapter begins with its own setup that you get in a little title card, and the one there is something about how you finally, the sub-C is finally picking up on the 747 megahertz. Right, and then you dive under, you find the ruins, you go on a tunnel, and then you meet up with your uncle. Right, so Chapter 6 sort of, that's been the thread all along that you were looking for your uncle, but Chapter 6 brings it to the forefront, and it is Mm. the culmination of that part of the quest, and to me that's fitting with its sprawling, I mean if you look at the map, it's much larger than any of the other ones, it's fitting with its, its sprawling nature because you're really honed in you're not doing any of the you know fetch quests along the way or whatever now you're actually looking for him literally you're looking like you get coordinates and you're looking for that coordinate location yeah yeah it's kind of weird because i start you know i spent on the first chapter talking about you know this whole setup with dr jones your uncle and all that stuff and then they kind of forget about it for the next two chapters and then oh Oh, two or more chapters. Then, oh, yep, he's like he's back. Yeah, it's that vignette structure you're talking about. I associated with Dragon Quest as well. Each town has its own little story and its own little conflict that you're resolving, and those don't always necessarily add up, except in some trivial way, to where you progress. What about chapters seven and eight? Chapters seven and eight is um, an example. Where they focus more on the action, but to me, that's, that's again, tying with the narrative where that makes sense to do that because, like, all right, now we're trying to find these cubes, 
and well actually chapter seven does still have the you know the maze aspect to it so it's really chapter eight that i should have been saying that about but still chapter seven is all right we have identified you know the villain of the story so to speak so now it's just find the the three I think you mean Zoda speak. Yeah, Zoda. So we got to find the three Chaos Emeralds and then summon the Eternal Dragon and then save the world. Yeah, more or less. Uh, the Eternal Dragon would be a lot cooler than what actually happened. Well, I like the part when Zoda melts to death. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's not the cubes that do that. Uh, so, yeah, Chapter 7 and 8, become more about the action. There's less of an overworld presence. And as you say, that's driven by the story. At that point, we've identified the villain and we're going in for the kill. Golem, how did you feel about the overworld sections kind of being stripped out of the game at the end there? Well, 7 has a pretty hefty maze. And in Chapter 8, everything is stripped out of the game. It's really just a couple of action sequences. There's one hidden room you can go to by accident, if you want. And aside from that, there's like a couple of enemies that are easy to kill and three bosses. So it feels like it's its own chapter just so that the final boss can be in its own thing and they make it... And um, one, it can be a big deal. And two, you know, it's going to be a big challenge, so they let you quit there rather than like in the middle of a chapter. Mm. You're saying they save all the big build-up for the villain until the final chapter, and then they railroad you through all that. Yeah, that's the denouement. There shouldn't be build-up in the denouement, though. No, what I mean is that chapter 8 is the denouement. They've already done all the build-up, and then going through all the boss fights is the downhill towards the... Ah, uh... uh, okay. I understand what you mean, yeah. So how did you feel about that? Not analytically, but... Did you like not having that? Did you feel like it was something new? What was your reaction to that change in, in structure? Well, the rest of the game has a pretty big build-up. The first dungeon in Chapter 7 is a maze that takes a long time to figure out. So adventure elements, I feel like, tend to make a game feel complicated. and They, they drag? Yeah, like when you have to put multiple pieces together, it's satisfying, but it wears on me. So Chapter 8 was satisfying in that, like, all right, you went through all of the hard adventure stuff, and now it's just a crazy downhill ride with all action all the time. Yeah, you're coasting. How about Adrian Daniel? Uh, Did you guys feel the same way as Golem about that? I feel like in action-adventure games, the adventure segments in general, tends to peter out towards the end. Zelda does that too, where it's like you've done exploring the world, so now it's just like, fight the bad guy or, and do the last dungeon. Yeah, Torian is like that. Yeah, you know? yeah Metroid, Metroid's the same way too, where it's like, alright, you kind of already done all the exploring and the adventure stuff that you can do, and now mm. it's kind of just like, you know, go through the last level. And it's kind of like that with pretty much all the Metroids, where it's like the last set parts of the game is actually pretty linear. Even yeah. in the even in the original, as sprawling as it is, Torian is just a straight trek down to Mother Brain. Yep. So I feel that's kind of common, and Star Tropics is pretty ordinary as far as I'm concerned. So they do that in Chapter 7. To me, it's just like, where are they putting Chapter 8 where it is, as I guess where you can say the weird part is, but it's not even then, it's like not really, because to me it makes sense that Chapter 8 starts 
with you confronting to the bad guy. Chapter 7 is you going through his base, doing the last dungeon segment and the last adventure segment. So chapter 8, it makes sense to me that it's this mm. nice short, you fight the boss, you chase him through his hallways, go through the last bits of his goons, and then you fight him again. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I also really like the comment that you made about uh, Metroid, how it's really neat how you sort of explore everything and then you know that, oh, now there's this final bit and it's back in this area that's been signposted throughout on the game that I need to go back to. And yeah, I love that feeling. Like they set it up really, really well. You know all along that this is the final bit and then logically, because you've explored most of the map already, then it's like, okay, well, this is the last step. Yeah. There's definitely a catharsis to it. The yeah, that's yeah, that's the word. Yeah, yeah, the feeling that you're there, and I, I really like that. And I think, you know, I haven't played through Chapter Eight in Star Topics yet. I'll admit, but I do think in Metroid and the other examples we've cited that that's something that works really well. And there's really nothing that bothers me more than a game that ends on a four-hour dungeon. That just okay. is awful. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's that's the first Zelda. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think if Final Fantasy games have a bad tendency to do that. Super uh, Mario Land 2. <laughs> <laughs> Super yeah. Mario Land 2 does do that, but it's not an action-adventure game either. <laughs> Actually, I could retract that a little bit. It's only a four-hour dungeon if you don't know where to go, but that's <laughs> typically how everyone plays Zelda yeah, for the first that's... time. Most people don't know where to go intuitively in a Zelda game. Yeah. Actually, I just wanted to add something into this discussion on the structure of the game as well. And you know, just thinking about Metroid and other NES games. So although this is a linear game, like it's got that chapter per chapter structure, and it's also modeled on the Zelda formula, right? Except it has these Dragon Quest bits. So it's really just on the dungeons. It is kind of like... Zelda in a way in that in Zelda you go to a dungeon which is a high intensity bit of gameplay and then you leave on the dungeon and the overworld although it's still you know it's still got uh, challenges and that they're optional once you've moved through the area a few times you know what to expect and they are lower intensity than the dungeons themselves oh and also you know, getting to on the next part also involves some sort of simple puzzle element and so yeah, I just thought it was neat in that the nature of the pacing is quite similar, although one game is based on an overworld and the other is based on like a linear chapter structure. Yeah, yeah, that overworld-underworld parallel is still there. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting in terms of that comparison that in Zelda, you know, you mentioned that familiarity becomes something that makes the overworld less intense. You know what you're getting into, or you know the screens that you're going to have to cross. And Star Tropics doesn't have you uh, revisiting places because it's linear. So it still manages the low intensity by taking out the challenge of combat altogether. But it's the same feeling, even though it's Mm. accomplished in two different ways there's still that sort of I'm in a familiar place, I'm in or I'm in a, a simple place, I'm in a hard place. Simple or hard. And I think it's neat that they get there in, in different ways and that that serves their story and their overall world presentation differently. So what 
Mm. So in Zelda, the effect in pacing is achieved just by means of structure, whereas in Star Tropics, they actually change what Mike can do based on what kind of experience they want you to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in some sense, you could say Zelda's more elegant about it, but I would never say that. Uh, I would never say anything about Zelda 1 is elegant. Uh, <laughs> How about I put it this way? It's more reliant on the player's development. So, you know, if you're really struggling with the overworld in Zelda and you just cannot handle the action at all, then it's never going to come to that level of familiarity. It's always going to be a pain in the ass to do everything. Whereas Star Tropics just eliminates that level of ambiguity. You don't Mm. need to count on the player to get good at the game. You just say, you know what? Here you go, guys. Uh, This is just a story part. We've talked about how Chapter 8 is sort of a denouement. If we were to divide the game, I'm not sure it is sensible to try to graft a three-act structure on here, but if you were to divide the game into a beginning, middle, and end, where would you draw the separation points? I'd say that, well, the end is certainly Chapters 7 and 8, when Mike comes across the UFO, because that phase of him exploring and trying to find Dr. Jones is all complete by that stage. I guess the beginning would be the first chapter or two, which sets up the story. And then on the middle would be the series of vignettes. I'm actually not sure if there's like, you know, if you can say there's a start, there's the vignettes. There's, as, um, as Greg was saying, like they find the coordinates for Dr. Jones. And then after that, you've got the phase where it's um, on UFO. Right. So to you, it divides into the search for Dr. Jones and then the alien part. Well, at the beginning of the game, it seems like Dr. Jones is just going to be at his lab. And it's not until you kill the snake and get through to his lab that the scope of the game becomes evident. So I would be confident in saying, like, chapter one is the beginning. Yeah. I was going to say something, too, where dividing uh, Star Trek to a 3X structure would kind of look similar if you were to do the same for a TV show. Like, what would you consider beginning, middle, end? It's like, take something like Avatar, Last End, Airbender. It's like, how do you do that? Or at least just for the first season. It's like, episode one's the beginning, and that's about it. Everything else up until the last two episodes is considered the middle, and then the last two episodes, which is a two-parter, is the finale. Which is the end, and Star Tropics is kind of the same where it's like it chapter is a one. Or... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's even a to be continued. Yeah, where chapter one is, you know, the beginning, two all the way through six is the middle because, you know, search for Dr. Jones, and then seven and eight is the end. At least that's how I would do it. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong about that. And I think you're right that that is a structure very common in television shows where they you know, introduce you to the conceit and then iterate over it and then wrap it up in some way. I don't think that's uh, unusual that we see that in a video game. Also, chapter one is called Prelude, so that's kind of a freebie. (laughs) Yeah, good point. But in terms of gameplay, if there was no story, I might say that chapters one and two feel close enough that they would be the beginning Mm. And that 
chapter six is where they introduce the double jump boots or the you know twice as far boots. Not boots. It's a headband. Oh, that's a oh. I thought. Wait, it's an anklet. No, it's a headband. So with that, I feel like that's where the game gets into its final phase, where they change up how the jump works, and then in chapter seven they change up how dungeon structure works. So you're saying forget about the structure or the layout and just looking at the individual challenges in the dungeons, the actual elements you're dealing with are consistent from chapters one and two, they're consistent, then three to five, they're consistent, then six to eight, they're in some way consistent. Yeah. Okay. And I would even add to that that my intuitive sense is that chapter two is part of the beginning as well. And I think... Same here. Chapter two is where you get the sub for the first time, or where you're controlling the sub for the first time. And it introduces you to the ideas of those hidden pathways and going underwater in the sub and getting heart pieces. There are a lot of new elements that come in in chapter two. And so I think that that is still sort of introducing you to the game. Chapter one sort of teaches you how to play the game at its most basic. You're going to have to walk somewhere, talk to people. You're going to have to jump over gaps and kill enemies to open doors. And then Chapter 2 introduces some of the more specific elements to this game that are not necessarily fundamental to the mechanics, but drive the design. And I think that that then is pretty much consistent from Mm. Chapter 3 to 6. You're still living in the same space. If you look at chapters 1 and 2, there's nothing in those chapters that is distinct from the rest of the game. A big part of chapter 2's identity is finding those holes in the walls where you can walk through. But then those are just in every other dungeon after that. Or not every right. other, but you know, they come, they're f- frequent. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, that there's nothing distinct to those initial challenges. Yeah. Chapter 2 does lay the groundwork for other chapters where... Chapter one has, you know, just a straight path to the boss, but chapter two is going to be like the one where it's like, it's actually not that obvious and you're going to need to be on the lookout for these hidden pathways to actually make it to the end. Right. And that's a critical element and will continue to be for the rest of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And then chapter seven, in my opinion, is where it just goes haywire. Everything goes crazy. That to me is (laughs) what signifies that we're... At the end, like, Hmm. we're in an alien spaceship now, which I'm guessing we probably all knew going into this game that that's where it was going. I don't know. Star, tropics. Yeah, it's not that subtle, and I definitely knew it, so I can't speak for anyone who doesn't. But you say Chapter 7 goes haywire. I mean, 7-1 is weird, but 7-2. Yeah, that's true, yeah. 7-2 feels like it's the most straightforward dungeon since... Chapter 1, really. So, that's true. I guess what I mean is not only the dungeon layout itself, but that you're in an alien spaceship now shooting Mm. laser beams at robots (laughs) and stuff like that. Like, all the enemies you've been fighting are gone. All the tile sets you've been jumping on are gone. You know, the first (laughs) thing I did when I walked into Chapter 7 was jump right into the green area. (laughs) Oh, that's the water now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like it's the biggest change-up in the game, and it 
signifies the beginning of the end. Yeah, I think namely in 7.1, this template within Under Dungeons, where it's very sort of strict challenges based on your interaction with the enemies, you know, that is kind of thrown out on the window and it all gets a bit messy, I think, because of the nature of the projectiles and it's your projectiles and you block out their projectiles and it gets a bit hard to read. And then you've got, uh, and on the challenges themselves, uh, more about trying to find your way through this interconnected space as opposed to engaging with enemies in a very cleanly presented way. Yeah, part of that is the enemy design. And I tried out just the other day when I finished up Chapter 8. I went in review mode to play Chapter 7 again. It's like, yeah, you can jump over their bullets, but they fire them out with so little warning. Mm. And they can delay if they want to shoot it out or not. They can shoot a volley and then immediately shoot another volley and then shoot even a third one right after that. And it gets really annoying to deal with, especially when there's multiple of them and when they can just walk right into you. Because in that time you jump and go for the three volleys, they can just walk closer to you and then, you know, shoot another volley. Yeah, I think that Chapter 7, we don't need to get too much into the enemy design or anything. But yeah, I'm I think about that, that. No, it's okay. Because I think you're right in that it's represented and Daniel's right as well. And that's why I said it goes haywire. Like the rules that you've come to expect from the game are largely dropped. and in some sense, I think it works because, you know, you're on an alien spaceship now and you are at the climax of the game. And this is a game that's already thrown us curveballs, so we should be expecting it to do something weird. And it goes way more far out than I would have expected it to. On mm. the flip side, it also loses everything that makes the game fun. So it's more successful as an experiment or as a concept, I think, than as a actual experience. (laughs) But mm. that's the kind of thing that I think it's a smart structural decision, but I don't know there's any way to make it work. Taking away the rules that make your game work is a very, yeah, it's (laughs) a strange thing to do. Yeah, I guess I'll put it this way. To me, this is actually something I see in a lot of games where take a rule like hit stone and then take it out of one of the enemies. And I mean, that happens a lot in games. I mean, that's basically the iron knuckle in twilight princess, but the difference is just how you tune it. And I think in uh, star tropics, they didn't just quite get it right to where it feels like you can get a lot of cheap hits from those enemies because of their ability to move, not take hits on fire projectiles really fast. And you just barely have enough time to jump over all of them. Mm. And if you're not in a powered up state, you can't do the strategy that I was doing, which is to just kite them. Okay. All good stuff. Did you guys have anything else to add about the identity of chapters, the order of chapters, the layout, before we move on? I feel like this structure is kind of similar to what I found in Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars, because you're constantly going to a new yeah, because you're constantly going into a new area, and then those areas have their own little stories. They're like, oh, the, the mine's screwed. Uh, kids got stuck in there, going to collapse and whatever, help them. Or, oh, we're in this cloud kingdom, and there's this stupid bitch that needs to get out of there because she threw the king off his, the real king's family off the throne or whatever. 
of the cloud people. Yeah. And <laughs> I know I'm describing it like a five-year-old, but yeah. And, but the point is, like, unlike Zelda or Metroid, where you're in this co- really compressed world that you're going to visit many times, in Star Tropics, you're always heading off into a new area, and that's how this, the chapter structure is set. Same with Mario RPG Legend of Zelda in Seven Stars. Yeah, you can go back to them, but the point is you're always moving forward to a new place. Even in the other Paper Marios after that one, you still go back into a sort of hubbish area like Rogueport or Toad Town. So that's one mm. of the things in structure that I find different with Star Tropics and that I don't see in you know other action-adventure games of the sort. Yeah, that type mm. of for- forward propulsion. Yeah, well, you know, journey to the west or whatever. There's a couple of mm. Metroid-likes that have that kind of structure. I know this one yourself was playing. I can't remember, but um, the aliens... Blast- Blaster Master? Oh, yeah, I guess Blaster Master. I didn't even think of that. I was thinking it's on 360. But anyway. Um, what, Shadow Complex? No, not that. You had a jetpack. But anyway. Um, oh, capsized. Yes, capsized. Yeah, I'm not going to let you finish. <laughs> but there are, um, <laughs> there are other adventure games where you get chapters, and there's adventuring to do within the chapter, and the chapters don't bleed together at all. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned a game that I played and liked a lot, because that is something I really like in Star Tropics, and I really like in action-adventure games in general. You should, I like... um, it, Blowout does it, but Blowout is a really bad game. Okay, good. I'll be sure to check it out. (laughs) That well-defined sense of I don't need to know anything before X point. Mm. Like, at a certain point, I get to start fresh, and I like that. Mm. All right. I think we have come to sort of a a better understanding of the the structure of chapters and the storytelling and in Star Tropics. Another way that Star Tropics structures the player's experience is with its continuity. Like the continuity of challenge in the game. There's a structural continuity that's imbued by any type of fail state. So Daniel mentioned earlier that in the dungeons in the game, you have fail states, and in the overworld segments, you don't. And the implication of fail states is that there is something that the player will have to replay. Well, I guess that's not necessarily the case, but in Star Tropics, it is the case. So let's just go with that. So that's facilitated by, in this case, lives, saves, and checkpoints. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I said this is something that has changed a lot over the years. You know, you don't see live systems a lot anymore. I mean, it's very common to see save anywhere or just save points. Star Tropics is unusual for its time in that it has an auto-save system. So when you reach certain points in the game, it creates a save file for you. So this facilitates the structure of the game because, you know, if a player is sitting there for an hour and has to play the same dungeon three times in a row, well, maybe it only took them 15 minutes on their successful run of the dungeon to complete it, but they played that dungeon for an hour. They spent that much time with it. 
and that informs how they get to know it. Can someone describe the live system that we are working with in this game? You start with so many lives. I think it, I mean, it's three, but it doesn't matter. And when you begin a dungeon, you work your way through it, and you'll hit certain rooms that are checkpoints where if you lose a life, you start back at that room. And that'll typically be where they play danger music or after segments where they play danger music. So if you die in the second half of the dungeon, you might only have to play that second half. And then if you run out of lives, you will have to go back to the very beginning of the dungeon. At any given point in time, the farthest you might be set back is to the beginning of the dungeon you're playing. Yeah. And, you know, as we said earlier, there aren't fail states in the overworld, so we're really going to be talking about dungeons here. I guess I call that a lives continue separation, where a mm. continue is from some fixed point and a lives, lives take you back to some variable point of progression. How often did you guys die in Star Tropics? Did you have to replay stuff a whole lot? Yep. Yep, quite a bit. I get, the time. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the Southern Cross. <laughs> uh, certainly omnipresent. Even in space. <laughs> it's floating out there somewhere. <laughs> were there any parts of the game you got through without dying? Or any dungeons that you were able to complete without dying at all? I mean, this may just be a memory test at this point, but I'm curious. Well, without dying, no. Without continues, maybe the first two, I think? This was my second time through the game, so I was able to do the first two without... Well, I was able to do the first one without dying, and definitely the second one without continuing. But altogether, there was always stuff you had to repeat. There were... Yeah. Probably not a lot of places that anyone went through that they didn't have to play twice. When you're dying a lot on a specific part of the game, like when you're stuck, what do you do? Depends on what actually gets me stuck. If it's hidden passage kind of stuck, that's when I start revisiting the rooms and trying to figure out what it is that I need to do. This was especially the case in Chapters 3, the Ghost Village. And one of the ruins which is in chapter, it's either five or six. Sorry, I don't have them all memorized. The one with the bowling balls. Yeah, it's five. Okay, yeah. Five is the one that has another, like, slightly mazy dungeon. Yeah. The other time, which is, you know, regular, oh, health zero kind of death. Um, That one, uh, sometimes it was just me taking too many hits along the way without being able to knock a heart out of the enemy. So it's just play better so you don't get hit at all and so you have enough parts reserved for the boss so that you can deal with them and not die in one hit or two hits like what was kind of happening to me in chapter 7. So So when you say play better, is that like you pay more attention to the enemies and figure out how to do each room like improve your efficiency or is it just you gradually become more familiar with it and sooner or later you can make it through to the end and have a bunch of health. Yeah, it's a little both. And sometimes I find new strategies or I'm more comfortable with being more aggressive, such as with the mummy enemies and moving around them even when there's multiple of them. Or in chapter five or six, one of the two, where there's that rock boss who's made of forming rocks, then he reaches one and like once I find found out that pattern, then I'm more comfortable with taking them on. 
or where I treat my power-ups more seriously. I think it's chapter 6 again, the ruins, with those weird, wide-headed, alien-looking things, and there's two of them in the room, so I try to conserve as much ammo. I don't waste it on the enemies, and then I try to time my shots better. I think, actually, it's the shurikens, the splitting shurikens you use on those things, but yeah, yeah, I time those better so that I have enough by the time I reach that boss. So it's some strategic planning going on there. Some yeah. some of the kind of forethought. Yeah. Daniel, mm-hmm. were there instances in Star Tropics where you were stuck on some difficult part, some boss or something, and everything in between the save point and that point you could do fine, and it was just one thing that you were really caught on? Or, I mean, this is kind of a, a really general question, but... Uh, sort of what I'm getting at is, did you feel that you learned the game at a consistent rate, or were there inconsistencies? I felt that most of the time I would have more or less mastered the dungeon by the time I approached the boss, and so I didn't really find much of an issue with replaying it. I mean, I'd probably say like 70 or 80% mastered, and then through the repetition of um, trying again at the boss and going through my previous steps, I would maybe pick up a few new details, but um, I thought it was fairly consistent, very very much like um, Mega Man in terms of its uh, learning experience in that sense. Um, actually, just to expand on what Adrian was saying um, before, sure. I got into a really good habit especially with on the bosses of just observing like so instead of trying to figure out what their weak point is straight away i just observe and make sure that i could dodge their attacks and i'd do that until i was pretty <laughs> unproficient and then once i was proficient enough at dodging their attacks i'd slowly be able to draw my attention towards any potential weaknesses and then test theories I was actually quite impressed with myself because I, um, yeah, sometimes I'm not normally so so considered. But I think it was helpful. And I think that the tile-based structure and that sort of clean on design really helped me focus my attention. So that was neat. That staying calm and just observing without trying to actually win, that's something I've noticed Adrian does up front. And it's not my preferred way of approaching a challenge, but if I get stuck on something, I will eventually come to that approach where my goal in playing is not to get through, but instead to poke and prod and figure out all of the different potential behaviors of whatever element or find out all of the potential forks on a given path. Mm -hmm. For you, there's a lot to experience there just in observation. Like each time you have to replay something, you're learning more just because you're surviving longer and picking up on new patterns that you didn't see and stuff like that? Well, it's more if I'm genuinely stuck on something, then I won't be progressing, and that's when I have to go into observe mode, basically. And then there's like a, a chunk of knowledge acquisition, and then once I have a lot of knowledge, I'm able to go through and blow through the dungeon. I did that with Metal Black, actually, where, like, the Stage 3 and Stage 4 bosses were really weird, so I just replayed them and replayed them until I got through them perfectly, and at that point, I was able to actually 
execute a full run of the game. Right, so, so you were able to build up the component parts into a uh, you know, full playthrough? Yeah. Dying and, and being reset for you is something that eventually shifts your mode of play. Right, that basically if I die in the same place every time, like in, in 7-1, I would die before reaching the boss, and if I reach the boss, then I would have like a heart. And at that point, I've hit a brick wall in the game, and so I need to do something. Right, so you look really hard at the bricks. <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> right, so with that type of mentality... If a game is really easy, or if there's no sort of failure reset, then do you find that your tendency is to just, if you can mash the A button through everything, just mash the A button through everything? Yeah, I think you know that I go through the I go through games at the lowest possible uh, skill floor. Yeah, and that's and, really um, brutal to watch. <laughs> it's also um, it's hard to pace yourself when that happens. I have a pretty terrible story I can share about the Pokemon trading card RPG. Oh, where, I love to um, hear this. It's a pretty easy game if you abuse the element system, like fire is weak to water or whatever. So the day I got the game, I I think I beat it. Just because like there was no point in the game where I got stuck, so I never had a time when it asked me to put it down. So it's helpful when a game is hard like Star Tropics because I structure my play sessions around when I can't play anymore. Okay. And that's where saving comes into it as well, where for you, that save point gives you a... You can set it down and come back to just that dungeon. Right. (laughs) There's a thing I sent you a quote from, a write-up on the Shmup forums called The Full Extent of the Jam, and... The basic thrust of it is, it's this guy who has a competitive Dodonpachi score, and he (laughs) learns games by using save states at strategic hard locations, and he has this story about how he won a Gwange competition against the current world record holder, because the world record holder didn't use save states, and so he was able to learn, the guy using save states was able to learn much more efficiently. Hmm. Interesting. I also remember um, Daniel had a comment when we were playing the Fireman about how the learning process was protracted based on the uh, structure of the game, sending you all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, that's well, that's something that's hard to weigh up because I think on the reason why in some games there's that time, you know, that period of separation between you failing at a challenge and then you being able to attempt that challenge again. But I think that a period of time is needed so that the player can internalize what went wrong. But the issue is how long is too long, right? (laughs) So that's quite subjective and quite hard to say. Yeah, but if you're you're playing Sonic 2 and the final boss is a one-hit kill every time... (laughs) and you only have so many lives to play through the game, it's a little bit annoying that you have to play through two and a half hours again just to get to the one-hit kill final boss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess extremities aside, yeah, it can be quite tricky to figure that out because in The Fireman, I can't remember now, but each level is what, how many, like... um, Like 10 minutes or so. 
about 10 minutes, yeah. In Star Tropics, if you have to restart a dungeon, how long will the dungeon be in minutes? Probably about 10 minutes. Like, assuming you're doing things successfully from beginning to end, maybe 15 for the longer ones. Well, that doesn't... Why would I think that Star Tropics... Star Tropics' um, downtime is fine, but the vitamins wasn't... Hmm. Is it because of the checkpoints? Because from a checkpoint back yeah, to the boss, it's probably only five minutes. Well, there's also... Fireman doesn't have save points. I think that... Yeah. I mean, if I recall correctly, that was... Oh, uh, that's right, yeah. 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 The difference was yes. once you ran out of lies, you start the whole game all over the, again. You that's right, yeah. As opposed to starting from the um, the beginning of each level. So it'd kind of be like playing, let's say, Star Tropics without any of the... Uh, overworld, and then having to start from Dungeon 1 when you had lost all your lives. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It also depends on what the challenges are like leading up to the boss. So if you've got a series of challenges that are testing skills that the player will then use against the boss, then going back and reviewing is actually a good thing because functionally those other challenges are designed to prepare the player for the boss. So going back and doing a bit of revision beforehand is a good idea. But then I guess it's different if those challenges are quite distinct from the boss itself. Yeah, and I think that dying notwithstanding, it would be ridiculous if you had to replay overworld segments in Star Tropics if you died in a dungeon. It's such a different challenge that it does absolutely nothing to prepare the player or to refresh the player for uh, retrying something. Yeah. Well, they both get you based on your ability to observe and overcome challenges. So, like, if an, an overworld segment will be based on your ability to find clues in the environment or through dialogue, and so there will be some gate, like, having to figure out how to get to Bananette and once you get through that town, then you're done with that challenge. The game already gates you on those parts independently, just without death. Gating is what I wanted to get to. So my question for you guys, I guess, uh, Adrian, maybe. When you finish a dungeon in Star Tropics, or when you reach a save point, do you feel like you have mastered the previous segment like you have not necessarily that you're perfect at it and you can do it without getting hit or speed or on it or whatever but do you feel like you understand and are competent at what you completed yeah yeah and you can also talk it down just to how i play games and that i guess you could say i'm more methodical so that for me Whereas with Greg, it's when he's dying too much and he hits a wall, it's like, all right, got to take this seriously now. For me, I kind of take that if I so much as get hit in the game. It's like, all right, why did that hit me in the first place? Oh, so man. that's why. Yeah, you definitely yeah. break things down to a very granular level. Yeah. So that's why when I finish something, I feel content that I can do it again and be consistent at it. I guess also to go to what Daniel is saying and that question of how long or how short is too short, or how long is too long in those reviewing segments. In Demon Souls, this happened on the one boss that had no shortcuts, and it was the blind guy. I forgot his name. I think it's the old hero. 
where you have to oh, go yeah, yeah. through like a 45 minute level uh, just to fight him again and I'm like forgetting things on the way there and then there are certain properties that that boss had that made him just inherently annoying <laughs> so that is just one example I want to throw in Star Tropics I don't think has that problem because with the way I play I can get breeze through those segments in like what 5-10 minutes and then get right back to that boss naturally in level 7 even when I knew how to deal with those blaster guys, alien troopers, whatever you want to call them, it was just trying to make it to the boss without taking too many hits because those enemies in particular were the ones that um, uh, was just hard for me to deal with. So if there's one level that I don't feel like I could do consistently, it's actually that one, 7-1, because of those enemies. It was yeah. arbitrary enough that you didn't create a solution, really. You just found a, that you, you were... Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I found, mm-hmm. I mean, I did work on my strategy. Like, that's how I was able to find that property. Like, oh, the blaster is actually one tile longer than the distance they can shoot at me so I can kite them. And, and I figured that out fairly quickly. It was just getting through to the end, especially that bottom right segment where there's like four of those blaster dudes trying to take them all out. It's just holy shit because you're dealing with a lot of randomness in there and the way they move yeah. and whether or not they want to go forward or just stay put or backstep a little because they can actually strafe. And especially with sections like that, that can actually try my patience, which is why I'm like, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to get through, help this guy jumps across the other edge so I can just sneak past him because on my successful run, I didn't kill those guys. I just tried to sneak past them, kill whichever one was unfortunate enough to be in my way, and I had a free shot on him, and then make my way to the boss, holding on to as much health as I can, get through those bikers because they have a technical issue where they don't spawn properly, where they just pop in the screen. They don't do that animation where they sort of drop in. I try to get through that as best I can and then make it to the boss. And then when I actually had enough hearts to see what the boss was doing to learn him, I the boss was just fine. It was just the parts leading up to him that gave me a hard time. Yeah, I think it's hard as a player to optimize that situation. I'm not sure if, if optimize is, is quite the right word, but like to actually see the pattern and respond to it and to play in a way that takes advantage of the pattern behavior. There's too much randomness, you can't optimize it, and therefore you just try to play in a sort of survival mode. Yeah, do the best you can. Right, and there's yeah. always a, a degree of die roll there where I just happened to get lucky on this one and I made it through. And yeah. oh my god, the nightmares in Mega Man X6, that is what that is to a fucking T, especially Ground Scaravich. Fuck that level. Holy shit. All right. All right. That was crazy. I've heard enough about Mega Man X6. <laughs> so. Well, um, sorry, just the other thing I have to say as well is that I think because the challenges are very clean and they're very uh, well-tuned, I think that the challenges are very much so based on skill. And they're to that point where they're challenging enough that it's hard to just luck your way through. And so naturally, like, you feel great after you beat them because you really do have to invest a certain amount of yourself into the challenges. Yeah, I never felt like I was... uh, Like, I felt after getting through a dungeon that I was about as good as Adrian would be. Whereas, like, with Fireman, I would definitely take plenty of hits. Yeah, and that's because in Fireman, you know, sometimes it was a bit cluttered. I mean, generally, it was a great game, but I think that, yeah, in some elements it was a bit unclear or there were too many things happening 
but it was really hard to... There's also more leeway in the Fireman, whereas I feel like Star Tropics is hard enough that, as you were saying, you had to get that mastery. Mm. Yeah. And as hard as level 7 was, at least with level 7, I still have a working strategy to get through it. It might take me a few tries on a second attempt, but I have it, and it's there for me. So even though I'm not consistent, I have something to work with. So the, the level did test me to master something. So Star Tropics having uh, relatively clean, isolated, skill-based challenges and also having checkpoints from which you can replay a nice small chunk of the game to get to wherever you died previously, that allows it to have a consistent structure to the action and to the way that the player gets at the action because at least I feel and I think from what you guys have described it might be safe to conclude that you feel that when you go into any challenge you know that you're going to be able to figure it out it's going to take you a certain amount of tries you you may or may not have a great idea of how many tries it's going to be but you know that they're going to be cues to pick up on and there's going to be a way to play defensively and observe the patterns. And that allows a certain relaxation or confidence in the structure of the game where I know if, if I'm like really stuck, I'm probably doing something wrong and the game is going to guide me forward. I don't need to worry about really hitting a brick wall. I think the underlying notion here, it's just that we trust that games are beatable. Right. And right. there's a great varying degree to which games can fulfill that promise to us. Hmm. You probably aren't supposed to be able to beat Pac-Man, and I don't know if getting a kill screen counts as beating it. <laughs> yeah. But I think yeah, Star Trek just does a really good job of defining what beating something means. And what that means, not just in terms of, oh, I got to the end of the dungeon and it's a new chapter, but what it means in terms of development of player skill and increase knowledge and understanding. Again, this goes back to what I said at the beginning and why I wanted to talk about how we each play games. Because when I sit down for, to play a game for 45 minutes... I want to make some progress in it. I, like, I'm going to be pissed off if I don't do anything in that time frame. And sometimes it's not the game's fault. Sometimes I'm not paying attention or not playing well or it has too high a skill threshold for me. But I have a certain expectation that there will be a concrete, definable session. Like, the beginning and the end will be different points. That's where I think this comes in, and I think it's something that Star Tropics fulfills really well. Yeah, I would say that. And as Daniel's been saying, it's got nice, clean gameplay challenges, and it's also one of the reasons why I actually think I prefer this uh, well over the first Zelda, where they were a little bit more random and a little bit more unpolished. NES (laughs) games in general, I would say, tend to, you know, another example we gave is Mega Man. Mega Man is a very nicely, cleanly designed game. So is the Castlevania series. But NES games definitely tend more towards the 
rough, cluttered, self-defeating sort of design where, you know, Ninja Gaiden is something that comes to mind where, yes, there are ways that I can memorize exactly what to do, but they also rely on just exact frame timing and stuff like that that has nothing right. to do with learning the actual patterns of enemies or anything like that. And it just feels like a mess of a game. And I think later on, not that we need to really get into this, but I think later, like, too far past the NES or, or S, even at the, the SNES days, it became more common to space things out too far. And th this is kind of what we talked about with Super Mario Land 2, actually, for challenges to just sit there by themselves and not actually be part of a, a whole. Um, mm -hmm. So Star Tropics mm -hmm. is right in that middle space where stuff coheres really nicely and is individually challenging, but is still something that you can strategically work your way through. Mm -hmm. Do we all agree that this game is better than the original Zelda? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, by far. Mm. I mean, I was quite surprised at how many reviews for this game online are like, yeah, it's good, but it's no Zelda. Like, huh? Yeah, well, it is no Zelda. That goddamn blows my mind that someone would say that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah, I'm quite surprised at the um, level of, what's the word, um, this disinterest in this game. Yeah, like, it's pretty good for, a, you know, for an old NES game. I mean, I know it came out a bit later than a lot of other games, but yeah, it's really good, you know. Um, I mean, all that stuff... Credit too. Yeah, all that stuff we talked about with the chapter structures and stuff like that, that is way above and beyond what an average NES game does. That's like, yeah. that's really forward thinking and autosaving as well. I mean, yeah. autosaving in console games is something that didn't become prevalent until four generations after Star Tropics was released. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and also the, um, the, the translation is pretty good too. Like it was obviously localized in the U.S., yeah, it is. It's uh, really good stuff. Yeah. With that, I am fairly satisfied with our discussion of structure in Star Tropics, whether it is in the pacing of the story or in the pacing of the challenges. We've talked about a lot of the things that define how much of the game or, or the ways that the game presents itself to the player and surprises them and sets expectations for them. Does anyone have anything additional to add about the live system, the saving system, or just structure in general? The dungeon structure plays into the more linear structure of the game in that if you pop open a Zelda game, often the overworld is a huge spaghetti mess, and each individual dungeon is a, a small spaghetti mess where... You'll have to re-traverse through rooms, and there'll be, like, one room where you have to figure out a central puzzle. And um, in Star Tropics, for the most part, it's one line through each dungeon, just like it's one line through the game. Sorry, I heard you like spaghetti messes, so I put a spaghetti mess in your spaghetti mess. <laughs> yeah, agreed. It is consistent in that way in terms of the linearity of the whole thing. You don't need to wander around no matter what phase of the game you're in. 
I'd still like to see if maybe it is possible to make 7-1 consistent. I think that's the one part where, you know, those clean challenges are a little lacking there, but I think it's more of a tuning thing than any weird design decisions because those enemies are still just like every other enemy you encounter in the game. It's just, you know, how fast they shoot and things like that. So I'd still like to see if maybe I can make that more consistent. Maybe there is something even more subtle about the way they move. The other thing I want to say is that with Star Tropics, and this is the good thing about it, is that you made a comparison earlier to Ninja Guidance. Like, that's a good thing about Star Tropics is that you don't have to memorize those weird little spots where something comes out at you and, okay, well, technically there was that one where you're running down a hall and spears come out of the wall, and I had to just memorize that one that just comes out way too fast. But that's rare, I find, in Star Tropics. And it's not like, say, the first Zelda where you can run into a room and there's like eight Gariahs or Dark Nuts or something like that, and you fight them all, and you'll do really good one time, and then you'll do really bad the next time, and you don't get what you were describing as in playing for 45 minutes and feeling like there's some progress being made. Uh, I just threw Zelda in there instead of Mega Man X6 for the umpteenth time. You you feel like you can get consistent at Star Tropics. Yeah, you you can undeniably get better at the game to where if you beat a level, you have actually done something. Even in level 7, as a little unpolished as it might have been. And that's a good thing. Whereas Zelda, if I was to replay level 6 right now with all the blue wizard robes, I don't know if I would do as good or worse or take the same amount of time as I did the first time going through that. Even with as much as I know about the enemies as I do now. Yeah, the reality is if all four of us had come into The Legend of Zelda blind, never having played it before and played it for two weeks, I'm skeptical we all would have finished it. <laughs> and yet for Star Tropics, everyone was done in like a week. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wouldn't have finished Zelda because I've been playing it for like five years. And <laughs> it. Yeah. The, um, Star Tropics doesn't fall into that trap either of make the last level like super duper long. Like even as long as chapter mm. three is, like those dungeons are still split up into three different parts. Like there's no dungeon that's, you know, w- w- what is the last dungeon? It's like a nine by nine grid. So there's like, f- I think, close to like 40 rooms in that dungeon and you can tell they oh yeah in zelda yeah yeah and star tropics does not do that it does not fall for that trap or at least it doesn't throw that in at you all at once it at least you know breaks it apart a little it is good at that i was quite surprised like i thought that each chapter uh, for each dungeon would be based on a unique item that you get like in the zelda games yeah, and they kind of did that like once or twice, like with the was it like the exploding shuriken, and mm-hmm. um, the boots, and the yeah, and the boots. Yeah, but yeah, they kind of like did a lot with only just the jump and the yo-yo, which was quite impressive. But I wonder what this game would have been like if each dungeon were based on a certain item. Probably just more of what you saw with what they did with the the jump headband and when you really think about it, level 7 is doing that it's just doing it with the gun which you don't have to use but you, mm. you damn well better want to use it because that's what made the challenge doable for me anyways rather than deciding to beat my head and trying to master the timing of jumping over their gunshots as they're moving towards me I find it interesting that you bring that up because I feel like 
a lot of the more linear Zelda analogs I've played also have a lessened presence of characteristic items like Beyond Oasis or uh, Terranigma or Illusion of Gaia. They are more in the vein of Star Tropics, and they also don't have those really item-based dungeons. Uh, so I wonder what it is about that type of structure that is associated with stripping out that particular element. I don't know. It could be casual association. It does kind of make it feel a bit less structured, a bit more organic, which I guess can be nice too. So, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. And it was something we talked about a long time ago in Terranigma, and I think it applies to Illusion of Gaia as well, is that the games do have a more uh, naturalistic approach than the... It's not gimmicky, but the more... It's like Regular. high concept. Yeah, I don't... Something, something... I don't know. I don't have a good way of wording the other one. But anyway, they have a more naturalistic approach that would be weird if it was constantly interrupted with new power-ups and stuff like that. Right. Really video gamey things. Mm, it's not as obviously themed. I don't even know if that's the right word for it either. Never mind. Yeah, it, it's, that. That, it's that they take their themes. I, I think, and this is what we had a podcast on about Terranigma, really, is that they take their themes from aesthetic concepts rather than taking themes from gameplay concepts. So instead of theming mm. something around well, being oh, able right, to right, jump right. twice as far, something is themed around like it's the roots of a tree. Like yeah. that's the theme. Yeah, I, I remember <clears throat> that. It's the roots of the tree, it's a vast savanna, or it's a tower, so there are multiple floors, things like that. Right, those provide the thematic through line. And that's something that hopefully not getting redundant here, but when I say, like, Chapter 7 of Star Tropics, it being an alien ship and being weird, you know, that's the same thing I'm thinking about. It deriving theme from... Um, from the movie Aliens. Yeah, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> more or less. Uh, yeah, but from something like more of a context as opposed to something concrete in the gameplay. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we've said plenty, uh, and I think I probably already said one wrap-up already. So, Adrian, who's your favorite James Bond villain? Oh, damn it. Oh, I don't know. I've only watched, like, two James Bond movies. I don't know that many. I guess the guy that throws his shoe or whatever. Oh, odd job, yeah. He's a classic. Wait. He's a henchman, though, not a villain, so that doesn't oh, count. That doesn't count. So Hot um, job throws his hat. The guy that throws his shoe is from Austin from Powers. Austin Powers. Yeah, oh, you're well, right. <laughs> me. I'm sorry. Uh, close enough. Did... <laughs> I'll give it a pass. It tricked me. So, uh, Daniel, who's your favorite James Bond villain? Uh, probably Shalashaska uh, from The Man with the Golden Gun. Scaramanga. Scaramanga? No, no, wait, Scaramanga is it? Oh, God, I got yes. it wrong. Scaramanga. Yeah, that's that's the right answer, so that's okay. Uh, Christopher Lee, yeah. Uh, Golem? I like all of them. <laughs> Terrible answer. <laughs> I like the... Edit, edit that out, because I, that's idiotic. I like the opening <laughs> song for Casino Royale. 
It's not a villain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that one uh, bomb maker that he was chasing, that was a pretty cool sequence. Yeah, when he blew the guy up, when he put the bomb on his belt and blew him up, that was good. Man, that's a golden eye thing that happens in that movie. Uh, lift by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah, as James Bond always said. <laughs> right. All right. Well, once again, thank you guys for joining me. Um, it's been a great podcast, and I look forward to the next one. Good night. <laughs>